This show is brought to you by Made by Super. Hiring a design studio is more necessary than you think. Your brand is important, and how it's represented shouldn't be phoned in. Whether it's your logo, website, messaging, online ads, environment, graphic design, or social media, you need professionals, thinkers, advocates for your brand, people that will make you look good. It will make a difference. Trust me. Go to madebysuper.com and hire great designers to get to work for you on your brand. Also brought to you by Age Old Trade Design, LA's premier hospitality design firm. Welcome to Acting Real with Kat Foster, where I talk with talented, seasoned, professional actors about how they use what they've learned from acting in their real, everyday lives. If you have been listening to the show and you like it and you're moved by it and it's helped you and it resonates with you, subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a good review. It means so, so much. And more importantly, it helps other humans find the show. Thanks. Hi, you guys. Today we talk to actor and educator Azita Ganizada. This episode has everything in it. She is such a major thinker and also a huge, huge feeler, and you'll see evidence of that in this episode. She also has an amazing background that we talk all about. Um, Azita is a super busy actress. She was a lead on the sci-fi series Alphas, and you've seen her in Entourage, How I Met Your Mother, Veronica Mars, The Mentalist, Sight, Castle, Up All Night, just to name a few. On the big screen, you saw her playing opposite Michael Shannon in the film Complete Unknown. She's also the founder of the MENA Arts Advocacy Coalition, an advocacy group in Hollywood that fights for the advancement and visibility of Middle Eastern North African performers on screen in film, TV, and streaming platforms. Her work has raised so much awareness that it actually led to the creation of a new demographic category in Hollywood, the first time this has happened in 37 years. Whoa. Upcoming, you can see Azita in the films Kilroy Was Here and The Friend and in the new season of the show Ballers on HBO. Enjoy, you guys. It is a skeleton, and you have to discover where the bones go. What I need for my life, I am drawn to create the play. And you must use the play. You must use it. Okay, hi Azita. Hi. <laughs> Where did we we know each other? Because we met one night at a like a little like a bar. Right? No, we met at a premiere of a film I was in. Right, a premiere. Yeah, we met at that premiere. We, what was the name of that movie? A complete unknown. Yeah, and you, you played opposite with, Michael Shannon. Yes, I was very Michael Shannon's sexy. wife. Uh-huh. Yes, I was his. Yeah, you know, sexy wife. He's sexy. Too. No, well, I'm saying it's yeah. a sexy thing to play opposite <laughs> Michael Shannon, like in general. Yeah, that was actually it was. Um, it was really an interesting thing because you always see him as the bad guy. Yeah. And he does that so well. Yeah. And he was this kind of wounded love interest. Yeah. Um, wounded husband. Oh, by the way, I don't know that there's anything that he doesn't do well. Yeah. He's he definitely so, has. So good. As a, as a, it's so funny. The more you get to know, like when you get to work with these yeah, people yeah. you love so much. They really, truly are a representation of themselves. Yeah, yeah. On screen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you really can't make that up. Like, he has, is his own specific brand of uniqueness. Yeah. And, you know, actors that try to emulate that, it just, yeah. it's not going to work. Well, but that's what's so interesting to me. And, like, here's why we're doing this podcast. Because, like, I want to know 
you know, I think it, it's possible that the thing that makes Michael Shannon such an interesting, cool actor to watch is that he's so deeply in touch with himself that, like, it, he brings his very, very unique and honest flavor to any role he inhabits. Oh, 100%. And so, but, like, isn't that the goal is for us all to just be so, so, so deeply in touch with ourselves that we, too, do that? You know what I mean? Like, there's not, like, Michael Shannon flavor, arguably, is just as, as interesting and delicious as Azita Ganazada flavor or Cat Foster flavor or whatever. But, like, you know, some people aren't, like, trying, some people prefer Michael Shannon flavor or, like, but, like, if we are, can truly be our own flavors, right, and like so here's this is that's a really good point Kat I think that the truth in that is that Mike and my experience in working with him he is very much himself mm -hmm. he is not going to be something else mm -hmm. what has made him and shaped him the person he is his childhood in Kentucky his his parents um, his love of, of poetry, literature, the newspaper, I mean, plays. This guy is so well-read. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily think of that because of these these roles he plays, but he's incredibly deep. And he's not going to he's not going to muddy who he is mm -hmm. ever mm -hmm. to please someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that as actors, there's a lot of people pleasing. I don't think he has that chip. Yeah. Some of us have that chip where it's like, we need to, oh, is everyone comfortable? Yeah. He doesn't care. Yeah, so how the fuck do we, I mean, arguably though, <laughs> like, right, arguably if we really are truly ourselves in the way that I'm imagining that to be, um, and, you know, we get into semantics and stuff, so I don't want to do that, but like, like, if we can really be our most authentic selves, then we're not worrying about if other people like us I have this question now that's on my thing and it's like if I were enough what would I do mm -hmm. and I try to use that as like a guide point that's a great right? question and when you say it's on your thing where is it it's, so it's on it's on my phone it's like you know was my screensaver you saw my new screensaver which is the varying cone of consciousness the levels of oh, consciousness yeah 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 um, I want to talk about that but yeah. you know it's if I were enough what would I do and mm -hmm. I think that that's a question this came up for me on a recent job mm -hmm. um you know, I got this job very last minute and normally from the other jobs I've gotten, I usually get top of, um, you know, movie billing uh -huh. and this one wasn't going to give that to me. Okay. And normally that would make me feel like they didn't value you, value me, mm -hmm. that my work hasn't spoken for itself, that mm -hmm. whatever. And I just kind of took a step back and the, I, by the way, what you're talking about just for people who might not know is oh, that where your, where your name is your, placed in the credits, where your name is placed in the credits, yes. which is usually at the top of the film. You know, you share a, a card, right. you see like three people's names on one card, well, you, know, you, have your own start, card you have your own card, or, like right. a complete unknown. I had my own card right. and, and, you know, that's a, you know, you've worked 15 years. You're like, yeah, there's my name. Like, yeah. I feel proud of this. Yeah. And it wasn't going to happen. And that felt, it was stung. Yeah. And I, I go, well, if I was enough, what would I do? Uh -huh. And I was like, well, I would go to work and I'd mm. be fantastic. Mm. And I would make everyone realize that I was fantastic and I would respect myself enough to just go in there and just be the pro that I am. And whatever happens, happens because I am enough. It doesn't matter where that's positioned. That's uh -huh. some sort of a weird thing that the business makes you feel like you aren't a value right. if it's not there, if right. it's just at the end credits or whatever. And I had to kind of check myself on that. Like, yeah. what am I placing value on as opposed to really diving into the work? Do I really care if my name is at the top or if it's at the bottom? Right. And so I kind of had to check myself with that question. And it really was useful for me in that space. And, mm -hmm. I, and, I, and I'm not sure why. I don't know. I think that was a little bit of maybe ego, a little bit of feeling vulnerable mm -hmm. coming into a big mm -hmm. job like that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what was the question again? What would you do if you felt like you were enough? If you were, if I was enough. What would I do? What would I do? Like that, that can come up in conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're like, or if. Well, the thing mm-hmm. that I'm just wondering is like, if actually maybe we do the same thing, but we just wouldn't feel like enough. Like, I wonder if enoughness actually reflects so, so strongly in your actions or if it more reflects in just your feeling, your being. I think in your feeling and being and then it's cause and effect. Right. Right. So it's like in the space of like reminding yourself that you are enough, Mm -hmm. that you're just good enough. It's, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Like Mm -hmm. we place all of these like, you know, um, parameters on Mm -hmm. what it is that's going to make us feel worthy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to be invited into. Right. And most of, most, most of the time we are, we're confused, but, and we think that like where your name is in the credits is going to make you feel like enough. Exactly. But actually if you can kind of source just your enoughness period, the outside circumstance doesn't as much absolutely matter. it doesn't matter and that's and and did look, you already work I did already and work and how was your day on set um it was a few days it was brilliant wow I mean it was probably one of my best experiences on a set yeah and my actor the actor I was working with Casey Affleck mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is credited to him tell me why so recently I've been trying to measure when my anxiety comes up on sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to do that on this film. Like, are you running on anxiousness? Mm. Watch your anxiety. Um, what's propelling you forward sometimes? And just even being conscious of that mm-hmm. just made me measure what was going on in my body if mm. I started to activate in a way that, that was anxious. But... Casey is such a pro mm-hmm. and I never felt like anything less than hit the num- hit number one mm-hmm. with him mm-hmm. in that space. He had no anxiety. He had no ego. He was such a collaborator and so present and connected mm-hmm. that it didn't matter. Like nothing else mattered when mm-hmm. we worked. Mm-hmm. Absolutely zero. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was so um, freeing. Mm-hmm. There was so much freedom. And I think that that truly came from one, I feel like I've, I've settled as an artist finally in my life, mm. but two, he was just so inherently available mm. and it was amazing. What does that mean? You feel like you've settled for the first time as an artist. I think, you know, I do really think that it does take a long time to get comfortable in this business. Mm. Uh, I think that being an actor is this untangible thing. We're truly professional human beings, right? Mm-hmm. We're learning how to be professional human beings and understand the human experience at, at every angle, the depths of pain and love and fear and brokenness and abandonment and all of those things. And no one really gives you that. <laughs> you can't be taught that in school. You know, they can teach you how to like land on a mark and blocking and, you know, how to come up at the end of a sentence or whatever it is that the tools and the techniques and the craft. But the actual experiences of all these personalities, and all of these feelings that are going to come out of you when you're experiencing living someone else's truth mm-hmm. and someone else's story I don't think there's any kind of a a school or a way to get comfortable in that. And I had a lot of not, I never saw, there wasn't a single person that looked like me Mm. on TV Mm -hmm. or in movies. Mm -hmm. I didn't have anybody. So you're, um, you're Afghan. Afghan. Uh 
am you were born in Afghanistan right? yeah so yeah. we're asylum seekers and and I learned English watching television mm-hmm. and so my mom was obsessed with Dynasty in Dallas and Mary Hart and the news was really important in our house but I wasn't allowed to do things that would put me in a situation with boys mm-hmm. so I couldn't do plays mm-hmm. I couldn't be on a stage sharing a stage with boys unless I was like the host or the commentator because then I would be alone I had to focus on academics and so it wasn't really until I left home and I somehow ended up in LA, which is a funny story, but um, that I began to really study. Mm-hmm. So I'd always felt like I was starting old mm-hmm. and that I didn't know as much as everyone else, mm-hmm. even though I had more life experience, which is what I started to learn as I was going through the process, mm-hmm. that it was my life experiences that made me a strong actor, mm-hmm. not how much school I had, mm-hmm. not how much experience I had mm-hmm. on a set or on a stage. Yeah. I mean, ideally, right? Like, uh, there's like, in, in terms of this, there's like a couple components. It's like, we have the craft that it takes to contain or facilitate our life experience. Mm-hmm. Like we have enough craft so that we can actually, when the moment calls for it, bring our life experience to the whatever movie, play, TV show. Um, and so, but if you don't have that much life experience, but you have a lot of craft, like that's that's cool too. You know what I mean? Like that can make you a good actor. If you have a ton of life experience, but like no craft, that will be very hard too. It makes you dangerous sometimes on a set because you can't, and that was where I was a lot is in the beginning mm-hmm. of, of my work is I was a little dangerous mm-hmm. in as far as my expressiveness mm-hmm. I didn't quite know how to harness it because the craft was getting layered in mm-hmm. while I was getting work I mean I think this is really uh, a universal sort of uh, metaphor I don't know uh, topic a uh, way of looking at something like I think like in probably any job um, or just in life it's like if we have a lot of shit that's happened to us we better know how we better be conscious of it right like we better we better have been cultivating or we better cultivate the 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 consciousness that we need to um to live life instead of have life live us right yeah. it's a really well well put a wonderful way to put well, it well I mean that's just why I'm doing this show always is because like I think like the way that we talk about actors and being an actor is just so you know parallel to like how we talk about being alive and being human right. and like living and that's really like why I'm doing this show because I just you know I think like my message one of my million messages <laughs> is like let's all get conscious you know right. let's all get conscious enough so that you know, we can take whatever shit happened to us in our childhood with our shitty parents or our, our amazing parents, but our shitty teachers or our amazing teachers, but our shitty friends or like how whatever trauma we had as, right. as kids. Um, so we can re- really like take that and, um, you know, use it mm-hmm. as grist for our mill, as like as a way of maturing and advancing and expanding rather than as something that's like terrifying and paralyzing. Of course. And also stepping away from being a victim of those experiences. All right. So, but what do you do when you didn't have that grounding or also yeah. when the experience and you're in overwhelm, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's so much mm-hmm. that you are outwardly expressing those things Mm -hmm. before you even know how to manage them exactly and so that was kind of uh, a lot of that happened to me in life 
and I was lucky that I had school as a resource, books, mm-hmm. and you know other people's stories, literature, education to feel connected to something. TV and movies was a way for me to feel connected to something that wasn't as that was as insane as my reality mm-hmm. because I was in overwhelm for a really long time, yeah. and so the way that I was responding was sometimes too. Uh, expressive mm-hmm. and and harmful even mm-hmm. to myself at mm-hmm. times you know mm-hmm. I put myself in some pretty dangerous situations yeah. that I was lucky to have you might call them mentors I call them angels mm-hmm. you know people that kind of jumped in and said hold on a second you know you're a good kid so tell us about like one or two of those experiences if you don't mind um you know I ended up getting <laughs> um there's some like pretty intense things and I I'll tell you just a little bit without selling myself down the river um so my parents needed to get divorced they did not get divorced for cultural reasons for about five or six years too long and there was you know a lot of um police coming to the house to break up fights there was you know a lot of school stepping in and trying to help us girls manage what was going on at home and really it was a product of two people that needed to get a divorce Mm -hmm. and were trying to stay married to appease their family and their cultural values and it was really detrimental to us as young people and so in order for me to in my overwhelm I was asking for help by finding the bad people who how much trouble could I get into and I was a straight A student like I was a smart kid but I found the bad kids Mm -hmm. I had uh, found a boy that was probably five or six years older than me so we're talking 18 and Mm -hmm. I'm 13 12 and 13 and I ran away with him and got into a lot of trouble and ended up getting arrested Mm. and put in juvenile hall and was got in a lot of trouble and I was in the eighth grade wow and school stepped in my counselors my teachers um and and actually and that was just one small piece of the things that I was trying to do in order to get help Mm -hmm. because I wanted to protect my family Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be stronger than I was feeling and I didn't know how to be stronger because I was 12 Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I just started doing really dangerous things. Mm-hmm. And when I got arrested, um, my teachers stepped in. And when I went to court, there were lots of letters and principals and counselors. And people were like, this is a good kid in a really tough situation. Mm. This is a moment where you're going to send her down a different path than she's meant to be on mm. and did you spend time in jail um no I didn't so I was you know when you get they arrested they book you, you and then you yeah. get out um but I did have a probation officer mm-hmm. I was put on um <laughs> probation, probation. Okay. um he said that this behavior I think sorry so so just so the 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 your teachers your principal all the people that yes. wrote the letters those you you consider those people angels in your life I consider those people angels yeah 100 mm-hmm. percent and I I also consider for everything that I say about my family I was raised to 
be respectful and show up and be on time and to be a leader and to be a support system and a collaborator. And so I was that at school. Mm-hmm. But what was going on in my home was creating this massive different version of of me that needed help. And I think my school knew that. And it was really beautiful. And I had a, I grew up in a small town mm. in Virginia. You know, we had yeah. cobblestone roads. And, you know, you couldn't have any colors on the street signs. It had to be brown or white and blue and white. Mm. Like, I grew up in Pleasantville. Yeah. You know what I mean? So my story was, was really well known. Mm-hmm. It was really specific to the teachers. Um, and all the pain that I was experiencing eventually forced my parents to like I was like they were about to lose me and that Mm. scared them and that forced their hand into separation Mm -hmm. and once they separated I was able to breathe Mm -hmm. and once I was able to breathe I was able to kind of snap back into the path Mm. that I was on and did you find that did you snap back in I mean yes I did I think that for whatever reason consciousness um, angels I actually found spirituality really early my family's Muslim. My grandfather was a Sufi master. And when he would walk into a room, people would kiss his hands and feet. Mm. Um, we. This is your mother's father? My mother's father, my mm. maternal um, grandfather. My father's mother came here to die. She was Kuchi tribe. She had tattoos all over her face. I mean, I'm talking like long, long ancestry bloodlines of like yeah. real tribes. And so for me, that spirituality was always, always existent. I chose at a very early age, not to be religious, but to find the truth in what was real for me. I felt comfortable in any house of God. Mm. I felt comfortable in churches. I felt comfortable in temples. I felt comfortable in mosques. I felt comfortable anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that there was a guiding force for me all along. I knew that early, Mm -hmm. like 12. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was very little, I thought it was the Pharaoh. Mm. I would pray to the Pharaoh to help me, come help me, assist me. Or whatever it was so I knew that there was something outside of me that was going to keep me where I was supposed to be mm. and I think that there we all have those little those little moments I think about it often about how we got out of Afghanistan and other women didn't mm-hmm. and how old were you when, when you did we were I was a baby you were a tiny baby tiny so you baby. don't remember this absolutely not you know mm-hmm. the Soviets invaded we had friends at the Pentagon and we ended up in Virginia mm-hmm. but what was why were we chosen and all of these other families and you know women and children my age that have dealt with insane you know insane atrocities and oppression and abuse you know why not them and so how what's your have you answered this i mean i definitely have survivor's guilt and i do think that a lot of the experiences that i had here was some sort of parallel reasoning to keep me connected to that suffering mm. I don't think that I was not supposed to have suffering. Mm-hmm. I think I was born into something that was going to m- make me have a grounding mm-hmm. and make me realize that my suffering was nothing compared to what I could have been facing, mm-hmm. right? So for everything that I was experiencing, I was reminded that I had not lost a limb in a landmine, mm-hmm. that I had not been forced into a burqa, mm-hmm. that I had been allowed to do the thing that gave me the most freedom, which was be educated. Right. And so what, but like you didn't remember that like, I mean, you were a baby when you left. So like who reminded you? Did you remind yourself? No, my mom. She did. So by force though, Hmm. my mother was very domineering. And so when 
so what would happen in, you know, the American cultures is, you know, there's pain. I don't feel good. And, you know, you get comforted. Hmm. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh. Are you okay? And it was like, you have pain. You don't know what pain is. Hmm. This is pain. Look at these children that don't have hands. Mm. sit down we're going to watch the the al jazeera we're going to watch the news mm. so you can see what's going on in your country and so okay. again little baby brain overwhelm i didn't have a right to my to my pain mm-hmm. i didn't have a right to my suffering mm-hmm. i didn't have a right to need help from what was going on at home and so i became very consciously aware of the gift i was given by being uh, granted asylum to stay in the United States. And as an adult, are you able to, do you have a right to your pain? That's something I'm dealing with in my relationship right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I have strong boundaries now in that space, but I do find myself get very threatened when I don't have a right to my pain mm-hmm. because I'm very strong and I've been through a tremendous amount. So when I say something is hurting me, I mean it. Right. <laughs> like I'm not someone that's like, oh my god, I didn't get enough likes on my what. I don't care about that stuff. That doesn't have any weight uh-huh. in my life. What has weight for you? Um, I think for me, a lot of it is respect mm. because I was disrespected so often. My boundaries were violated quite a bit when I was little, and because you were a by like other students family um you know yeah school came into that too you know people um there was definitely you know people threw rocks at us and told us to go back to our country Uh um, which was confusing to me because I thought I was like everyone else until I was aware that I wasn't Mm. um someone asked me if I was in ESL Mm -hmm. and I was like what is that Uh And they were like, English is a second language. And I was in gifted and talented. Uh And so I didn't understand. And so, again, my little brain went into overwhelm. So I I won every single award that I could win to show that I belonged. I ended up winning the Daughters of the American Revolution Award. I mean, that's the Confederacy Award in Virginia. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, but like, so this is what, because like, I feel like a lot of us have this. I mean, certainly I really identify uh, in, in part with what you're saying in the sense that like, you know, I, it was not encouraged from, you know, and it's different, right? We had come from different ethnic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, you know, I, I, it's a different life to come here from a different country and grow yeah. up here. So I acknowledge that. Um, and, but where I find, what I find similar is that, you know, like in my house, like when I was scared or sad, um, nobody was like, let's talk about your feelings. People were kind of like, you're fine. <laughs> you're okay. Yeah. You're fine. Or like, oh God, we don't have time because we're doing other things to deal with your feelings. And so what I did, similar to you, is I was like, I'm going to achieve a million things. I'm just going to get straight A's. I'm going to achieve things. I'm just going to achieve it too. But obviously this doesn't work as we get older. Well, that's how, like, so it's something I say, therapy is a very Western And I think it's a very modern thing that we have here in the United States and in European countries. It's a beautiful gift. Mm -hmm. There is so much depression. There is so much sexual violence and abuse and um, PTSD Mm -hmm. in so many countries. If, you know, your family, from what they left, they probably had a tremendous amount of PTSD leaving their country, leaving their family behind, Mm -hmm. Uh, that separation of tribe, Mm -hmm. you know, it was incredibly difficult. 
I'm a at, Jew. I'm a Jew. So, it, you know, but that was of, of course, and three, so, three generations before. So my grand, not my grandparents, but their parents came from Eastern Europe. And what they experienced, that is still in our DNA, yeah. right? So that DNA recoding stuff. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? What are we feeling? That's a actual connection to our ancestors. As we think, you know, okay, no, I'm great, but actually there is a tiny little lull of suffering. Mm. And sometimes that's not, I say that either that's universal pain, you're connected so much to the earth that that little suffering isn't, oh my God, I woke up, I'm in a bad mood. It's, can you connect to the empath in you that understands that there's suffering in the world and mm. how can you better, better the world today? Right. Or is that suffering a little piece of your heritage and your ancestry? kind of just humming in your body a little bit, asking you to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. How can you heal those traumas? Do you? How can you end that pattern for your daughter? Or how can you love your parents a little bit more so that they can feel better and heal some of that trauma in them? Mm-hmm. We expect our parents to have healed their trauma, which they didn't have the tools to. We have the tools to more than they do. Mm-hmm. We have the opportunity to end the cycle for our children you know, to, to help them manage whatever that little, those moments of suffering that come up and be able to kind of root it out and be like, oh, okay, cool. Suffering is normal. Can't be scared of it. Let's it could be a number this. of things. Let's look at this, uh-huh. you know, and instead people are afraid I'm suffering, but I'm angry and I don't want to talk to anybody in my life. And it's like, no, no, no. Suffering is a part of the deal. Right. You know, like be okay expressing that fully and feeling it mm-hmm. and not be scared of that. Anger is a part of the deal. Feel it fully so that it evaporates, mm-hmm. right? And know that it's anger. And then how can you then better that? You know, how can you better yourself? What is it that you need to do to care for yourself or for the person that you might have been angry towards? Mm-hmm. How do you then repair that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of uh, this idea that like, sometimes we, you know, our feelings aren't always our feelings. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you go into, uh, like, a, a hospice center and you're around a bunch of dying people, you will probably feel sadness. Of course. It's not it, having nothing to do with, you know, like even if you just walk in and you don't even see anyone, you just sit there in the lobby, you will feel that. You know, through this relationship I've been in, I've learned so much about, some of my activation systems, Mm -hmm. you know, I realized that because my mother didn't speak great English and she spoke many other languages that she would get so much anxiety in Mm -hmm. situations where she didn't feel smart, Mm -hmm. you know, and that breaks my heart Mm -hmm. to think about that for her. And then I would step in and and be the smartest Mm -hmm. and just take care and like show everybody that, you know, you can't do this or whatever, but that anxiety that she had, I have. Mm-hmm. that comes up for me. It's not mine. Isn't that amazing? I have the same thing. I have the same thing with my mom. I've, I don't know if I've told this on this podcast before, but every morning my mom, <laughs> she's not going to listen. I'm assuming she won't listen. To I'm this. praying my mom doesn't who hear knows? this, but she has Google now, so I who mean, knows? <laughs> um, so anyway, but, my, but whatever, by the way, I don't care if she knows this. I think it's interesting. So every morning when I woke up, like I would see my mom, you know, get out of bed or like one of the first things my mom would do in the morning was lift her shirt and look at her stomach. She didn't like her stomach. She felt it was like fat or whatever. Um, so I, I'm an adult now, and I 
I'm like pretty cool. Like I have some stuff with my other body parts, but for whatever reason, my stomach isn't it. Like I don't, my stomach's <laughs> fine. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, for whatever reason, that's not really where I gain weight. I'm more like sort of like, ah, I don't really like my butt, my thighs. Like I'm not so into my butt, my thighs, right? On my, on a bad day, I'm like, oh God, my thighs are fat, right? Um, but for whatever reason, every single morning of my life, I lift up my shirt and I look at my stomach in the mirror. Interesting. And it's just like, or in another example of this, and I know that I have talked about this on the show, um, my mom grew up in, was poor growing up, like really poor. And um, I wasn't, I wasn't. Now, we, I wasn't like wealthy, but I certainly, I wasn't even near poor. I was, I was solidly middle, upper middle class, right? Mm-hmm. I went to private schools. I had a fine life growing up. Um, and, you know, I, I, I live in a big house now. I have, I mean, like, I'm fine. Everything is fine right now. And yet I frequently am terrified of going like destitute, Mm -hmm. which would, there were so many things that would have to happen for me to actually like suddenly be homeless. Like there are a lot of things that. So what's the story you're telling yourself? Is it a story or is there, or do you carry the burden of that in in your blood yes I think it's the feeling I think I grew up around I grew up very closely with my mom I spent a lot of time with my mom as a young child and my mom felt scared Mm -hmm. very scared the first word I learned how to spell was money m-o-n-e-y right m-o-n-e-y because my parents would spell it and again like we were fine but my mom was just really scared all the time and here I am an adult person I've made a lot of money I have a support system in place I'm fine but that is like always a looming fear for me. And yeah, we and, the, and that to speak to what you were saying before, this PTSD that's passed down from generation yeah. to generation. And so we have to recreate the story, right? So in that neuroplasticity of mm-hmm. how we create new brain, you know, new neural pathways mm-hmm. in the thinking is, is when that story comes up for all of us, if it's mm-hmm. a fear of money, if it's a fear of love, it's a fear of body, then when that story comes up, it's super important to then journal what coming up for you Mm -hmm. and what the real story is Mm -hmm. and the more that you can do that then the more your brain starts to attach to the real story describe that when you say the real story what do you mean so the story that comes up for you is i'm afraid that i'm going to be destitute i woke up with this fear that i'm going to lose everything the real story is that i'm successful i have a support system there it would be near to impossible that anything that that i'm feeling would ever occur Mm -hmm. I'm fine. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And so as you continue, you have to actually catch those things mm-hmm. and then recreate them. Mm-hmm. And whether you do that, uh, there's a few ways to recreate, you know, to create new tell me, pathways. Tell me that's... about it. And do you do this? Is this a practice of yours? So I've always been interested in the brain. Um, and how we can create new brain waves. I actually sat next to the dean of medicine. I was lucky enough to speak at Harvard. Yeah, um, I want to talk all about this. A few this. weeks ago, and, yeah. and on my way back, I well, sat next can, to the dean of medicine. Can we go back to the, the dean? I want to talk about neuroplasticity. The, he, so I was talking to him about it. Yeah. And um, But no, but I'm saying, can we just take a second to acknowledge that you, uh, not only are you an actor, an amazing actor, but also you have become an activist. I mean, you have become, you founded the Mena Arts Council, um, advocacy coalition at the Me- Mina, Mina Arts, Mina, Advocacy, Mina yeah. Arts Council <laughs> advocacy, Co- advocacy Coalition right Mina Mac Arts. okay great <laughs> because you were like and this is so ironic because like as a kid everyone pointed out to you that you were different mm-hmm. and now here in Hollywood everyone's like no you're the same right 
Yeah. Well, it's funny. It, it, I mean, this is what spawned your found, founding this this coalition. Well, it's, it's interesting. So for a few reasons, you know, it's funny. I started acting after 9-11 mm-hmm. and I did not change my name. Mm. And people were like, you, sh- you should become, you know, something different, you uh-huh. know, become Addison Parker or something. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally be an Addison Parker. Sure. People uh-huh. don't know where I'm from. I'm ambiguous. Yeah. But no, I stayed Azita Ganizara. And I would walk into every single room and people would go, God, Azita, Gani, God, God, I'm like, it's not that hard, Ganizara. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, where are you from? And I would say, Afghanistan. Silence. Mm. Everybody would get silent. Right. I became a, a, a teaching moment mm-hmm. in every casting office mm-hmm. and every producer session on every film set. I became the token person from that part of the world. Was mm. I terror? Did I know? Oh my God, the women in your country, do they look like you? Like uh-huh. all of these stories that people had, these fears, these confusions. And I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. Um, and uh, and as that teaching moment continued to go on, I was obviously very different and I got successful. When diversity became important about five years ago, I was then counted white. That's what's so crazy. I was reading some uh, about your your what you're up to. So the Middle East, anybody from the Middle East, because of the U.S. Census, we fell into the Caucasian category, and so there was no box for us to check. So we couldn't get hired for wow. those regular roles when they were like, "Oh, cool, we're going to go diverse here." You're I couldn't like, get I'm that job. Diverse, no, you guys. no, I wasn't yeah. diverse. Yeah. And so I stopped kind of working but isn't that ironic though that like you go like everyone as a kid is like you're go back to your country and now here everyone's like you're just white you're white in the the checking of the boxes they're like you're white and uh yeah it became really complicated and i had to find a way to create um a seat at the table for my community and i feel like that became just something that was really important to me we achieved that i ended up building a new category into Hollywood for the first time in 37 years. So where you have a box to check for the entire Middle Eastern North African community, and that's 22 countries. So that's Morocco, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Lebanon, Turkey, Iran, um, is some of Israel, uh, Afghanistan. Now you have a real legacy. <laughs> I'm leaving this. This is I'm building this now because yeah. now I'm, I'm we just rebuilt the breakdown services and wow. wrote the casting guidebook, casting site of America guidebook. I've had open town halls with the Casting Society of America has been so rad. Casting directors were actually my angels mm. in this. The casting directors showed up and were like, hey, Zita, guess what? This is happening, and we don't know how to how to fix this. Wow. You need a cola. You need a lobby. Who do you know? Right. Because I was that first that everybody kind of met, I, maybe they felt comfortable with me. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But they really were my angels in this space and continue to, to do so. And so now I'm scaling the work and doing – What's happened is as this, all of this diversity happened and we could only play terrorists, we could only play tyrants, we could only play hijabi women with suicide bombs strapped to our chest. I mean, think about it this way, okay? That's the way that our, you know, I presented a study in September and 78% is of the time. Is this Harvard or this No, is we presented the study nationally okay. with a, a, a professor, um, Nancy Yuen Wang. Um, okay. She's an amazing researcher and uh, oh, right. I read this. Yeah, a stat. diversity champion. 78%. 78% of, of the time that we're seen mm-hmm. on TV were seen as a threat in a crime drama mm. or as a terrorist or a tyrant. Now, think about this and consciousness wise. Mm. If you saw any group 
two-thirds of the time is one thing. If we saw white men only as neo-Nazis, KKK, Mm -hmm. slave owner, or mass shooters, Mm -hmm. what would people think of white men? If we only saw African-American men as gangbangers and drug dealers or rappers, Mm -hmm. what would we think? And that's what, you know, the African-American community has been doing a good job. It's still not there, but of building heroes in this space. So there's this real consciousness that, yeah, when you see a woman in a hijab, you're like, what's going on underneath that hijab? Because the only time you ever really have any access to that is on a TV show where there's a bomb strapped to her chest. Mm Mm -hmm. I'm scared. Right. And I'm from that part of the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I started to recognize that I I had some of those biases. Mm -hmm. Unconsciously, that's what happens. Right. We are not above that. And so all this unconscious biases happen. And then there's an emergency in the world going on. There's a Muslim ban. There are people walking into mosques, shooting them up like they're video games. Oh, my God. People on the news saying, I don't trust those people. What are they coming... Most of the people have been hurt by terrorists. Right. And assholes are assholes mm-hmm. in any culture. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. If they if they actually monopolize a, a religion or a, it's an ideology. Right. It's not a religion. Mm-hmm. You know, like a mass shooter isn't, you know, if they're monopoli- they're monopolize- monopolizing an ideology. You know what I mean? They're right. not, it, it, like, that's, that's not okay across the board. Mm-hmm. And so nobody was speaking up about it. And I'm not even incredibly religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, why am I the only person fighting for this fair and balanced portrayals in Hollywood? And it didn't make any sense to me. But what has happened is everybody's opened their doors. Right. Everybody's like, we don't know how to fix this. Help mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is this kind of little thing that I realized was a hole and gaping consciousness for mm-hmm. our community has now become this very big thing that's taken on a life of its own. And then I have to see through. And so when I'm lucky enough, I'm still acting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're really busy with this. I'm really this like busy. Your whole, I mean, you're the founder of a coalition. I'm the founder of a coalition. It's, it's being <laughs> scaled. You know, we just, Incredible. we're going to do a big symposium at CBS and um, do a full diversity training for all the showrunners. Uh, we are now doing a proposal for the first ever study with UCLA to do what the Muslim experience has been on television. So wow. we actually can quantify the data. Um, we're going into Lionsgate and doing a diversity training for them. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, nonstop in the space of living as an educator. I don't call myself an activist. Mm. I call myself an educator in this space because that's really what I'm doing. I'm actively walking in there and just like you didn't know, you're like, oh wait, why are you Caucasian? Like, how does that, how does that work? People don't know. I'm not here to say I'm mad at you. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's some, something's going on everybody. Like we need to talk about it because it's, it is hurting the consciousness across the board of the globe towards a massive population of over a billion people Mm -hmm. are all being seen in the same way. And that has to change. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, amazing. You're amazing. (laughs) This is amazing. I mean, it's a really, it's, it's an incredible thing that you're taking on. Thank you. And it's what, uh, like, I mean, I I mean, probably every day you're kind of like, what the fuck am I doing? Oh, I'm terrified. Like every day you're probably like, really? I'm the one. I'm the fucking one who had to found this fucking coalition. <laughs> I love that you say that because I am terrified. Of Most of the time I get phone calls and and it's funny though. It's that thing of where you learn quickly what imposter syndrome is because yeah. I'm like, holy crap. Well, 
uh, yes, but but here's the other thing. I have been the expert living this space. Yeah. Every single day for 15 years. Right. I was the teaching moment in every single room. So when I talk to these very high profile PR people and communications experts and, and national security experts, all these people that I'm, you know, leaning on for support and can, you know, I have assistance. I have brilliant, like people that own technology in countries, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. helping me. I talk to them and they're like, you don't need our help. I'm like, what do you mean? I need so much help. <laughs> I need this. I need that. I don't yeah. know how to sustain this. I don't know how to scale it. I don't know how, because we didn't have an NAACP. I'm like, am I building an NAACP for our community? Yeah, yeah. Ah, I, what? Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. They look at the stuff and they go, you don't need the help here. We can go through it and help you edit it. You have the story. And I, and I have learned as a storyteller, the thing that really has helped this work is that one, I come from a place of, of experience. And so my story is, is vulnerable mm. and it's authentic. Mm. And what I experienced and the way that I've experienced it, I'm able to convey that affects people. Mm-hmm. They feel that and they understand it. And because I come as a storyteller and as an educator mm-hmm. and not as this fists up activist, mm-hmm. um, there has been so much change. Mm. And I've learned that when, you know, there is a place for social activism and, and being engaged in all of the things, but I am sticking very, very tightly to my lane mm-hmm. of what I know I can create change in and have been able to create new policy and new legislation and new things around. I stick very closely to that lane that I'm really good at mm-hmm. and live to educate others in this space and hopefully open hearts. Did you find that um, that like this sort of took on a life of its own very easily? Yes. Like you know, we always hear about how like you know, what, who was I think it was Kelly Stewart who was uh, if if it if, if it flows, you know, it's God. Yes. Um, did you find that with this process? I couldn't even understand how the phone call. I mean, I was getting phone calls from professors from. Uh, you know, scholars, mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, worked with other scholars throughout history trying to create what I had created. Mm-hmm. I had lawyers, uh, founders of massive organizations tell me I would never achieve this. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't believe the the organic way which mm-hmm. everything unfolded and required all of me. It it took a hit. My relation, you know, in July when we were presenting the study, I felt really nervous. I was talking to PhDs. Mm-hmm. I was talking to communications experts. I was rolling out the first ever study of the Middle Eastern experience of mm-hmm. t- on television. And it required all of my attention. And I couldn't give that attention to my relationship. My relationship took a little bit of a hit. I had no space mm-hmm. for my career. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. nothing to yeah. give to that. Yeah. Because it needed everything, mm-hmm. and I was willing to give it everything to build it and to, to get it to Do you think this is your new career, though? I don't think so. I think that I'm going to scale it, and I hope that I'm, I hope that I'm continuously given the platform because what what was truthful was that my little tiny bit of a platform as an actress, my little bits of press, my little bit of name recognition was what helped get it attention. Mm-hmm. Had I been more successful, more famous, way more, if I had Amal Clooney and George Clooney on my team, Casey Affleck recorded a video for the young Muslim girls I spoke to at Harvard. And just having Casey 
mm. you know, jump in on that created so much attention mm. for these this young National Muslim Leadership Summit. Mm. And so it's just that little tiny platform that you can use in a way that's beneficial and pointed and whatever can actually help build it. So I do think that the more I work as an actress, like being on Ballers this summer, right. whatever press I get, mm-hmm. if I you know talk to somebody about that, then inherently my work in the advocacy space comes mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky enough to push that work forward. One person reads about it calls me and invites me to come in and do an educational um, right. symposium. And what, um, you mentioned this about changing your character's name. Yeah. So, so it's really that. cool. So something, so I never get, and I've never played, um, you know, your typical Middle Eastern girl roles. I don't play those parts. Uh-huh. I don't get hired for them. People don't see me as ethnic enough. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, even though I speak, you know, other languages and do the accent, all that good stuff, they're like, mm, she feels American. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, you are a white person telling you don't know <laughs> anything about this. This is so funny. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'll just give you the ballers example. I got cast as Jan. Mm-hmm. So I'm Jan. (laughs) And um, the producer, the executive producer, Steve Levinson, who actually created Ballers and he produced Boardwalk Empire and in treatment and entourage. And he's Mark Wahlberg's producing partner. He reached out to me and goes, do I have to change your name? Whoa. Because of the work I do, because he follows. But my, that's cool that he reached out to you. He reached out to me. And I, my heart burst. I said, yeah. you know, this is this is part of the work I do. And I'm not going to push you in this. But it would be really great if now on Ballers, there was, instead of, you know, Jan. Amber and Kelly and Sophie and Jan, mm-hmm. there was something reflective. He goes, I want to name you Safia Mina. Mina after the work you do. Amazing. I just got chills a little. And I go, I, I cannot believe you're doing, thank you so much. And he did it on his own. And so that's the first level of consciousness, right? Because he's paying attention to my work and he's seeing it, he's realizing as, and I record these videos and I tell people how I try to prevent erasure of our community. So how people can see somebody like Safia, who's a producer at Sirius XM Mm -hmm. is just like me. Mm -hmm. She's from the middle East, Mm -hmm. but she's got this baller job. Mm -hmm. And then I don't become different and people don't get unsure when they see the name Safia. The film I did with Casey Affleck, the friend I was hired as Elizabeth Pryor and the producers from Scott Free and the director who's amazing Gabriella you know you know I'm just doing a week on this film Mm -hmm. and I was really respectful and at the end of it they all began to learn about my work and um, I said you know I really love that you guys know about my work and here's I have a a suggestion and whatever you guys want to do I know I'm just you know a week in this film but she's Elizabeth Pryor and what would be really cool is if audiences saw Elizabeth Hamadi Mm. on the screen as next to all these names Anglo names you Mm -hmm. know so that she's not just it's not erased that this girl is an Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Pryor that this girl is an Elizabeth Hamadi Mm -hmm. or Hamdi or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to name her Mm -hmm. so that when there's that in the credits it just gives, it's a tiny bit of seeping into the um, mm-hmm. subconscious. Mm-hmm. In the film I did with Kevin Smith that's going to come out next year, there's a, a line where um, Ryan O'Nan's character. I is, love him. I love him oh, I love too, him. man. Yeah. He's the goods. Yeah. Um, he comes up to my character and it was written to say, Sarah Gomez, will you marry me? And I went to, to Kevin 
and his producer, Andy McElfresh, and I said, God, you know, what's really cool about me is that I'm from this part of the world that doesn't get a lot of name recognition. So could we name her after um, somewhere from my part of the world? And my stepdad is from, you know, his last name is, I think is Pakistani. And so now in the movie, Onan goes, Sarah Sadiq, will you marry me? Mm. And it's just these little tiny things that I don't want to erase myself. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to become Sarah Gomez. I want to be Sarah Sadiq. I want the audience to get comfortable with that. And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. No, that's a big deal. Because so often our community either is playing you know, Abdul al-Rasir, or they're playing, you know, Jan. Right, right. <laughs> and there's no actual just normal character that's Azita Ganizada. Right. That's just like me that grew right. up here and is like, has this rich culture and is like, got these cool things, but is also a part of our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what I try to push other performers to do mm-hmm. in their work when they have the chance. Mm-hmm. God, that's so cool. And also, I just feel like it's like kind of like we were talking about with Michael Shannon. Like, you're like, I'm me. Yeah. I'm me. And that includes that I'm Afghan. Yeah. That includes that. And so I'm going to be me. And and I hope that everyone will follow me in celebrating me. And that's so funny because I didn't know why I didn't change my name. Azita Ganizada is hard. I didn't know why. And it all kind of. It presented itself when I had to turn towards the religion I wasn't really, you know, overly religious about when I had to turn towards my identity even more Mm. and say, no, this is uh, who I am. Mm -hmm. And this is a part of what you guys need to learn is a part of the tapestry of this world. Mm -hmm. My dad helped translate for soldiers, U.S. soldiers, to help take down the Shah, you know, Mm. and... My father's work helped keep those soldier, U.S. soldiers safe. And so we received asylum through our friends at the Pentagon. My father is a very part of the fabric that protects this country, mm. you know. And so a thing that most people don't know is that he is and has been, and my family was a part of that. And so we have our seat at the table. We do belong. Mm-hmm. We are very much a part of the American culture just as much as anyone else. But we also have this very rich history and identity associated with this other very cool country that not a lot of people know about. Right. Is this your dharma, do you feel? I don't know. I mean, do you feel like this is your purpose in life? Wow. Travis thinks so. My yeah. boyfriend thinks so. Okay. He, he feels like, you found it, baby. This is it. Yeah. And, you know... I had because something I had to find a few years ago was the seed of why I became an actor mm-hmm. because I lost it for a little mm-hmm. while. Mm-hmm. It's like why why am I doing this again? Like, you know, I'd gotten I'd gotten billboards and I'd had the press and that all went away and I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel like I really achieved what I wanted to achieve. I was a girl from Afghanistan leading a show on television. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's something cool. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. Like, talk about that, you know. But I had to remember what was so important about why I followed this path. I came with, I didn't have money. I came with a broken suitcase from Kabul. I'd only been on a plane once Mm -hmm. before I showed up in LA. I Mm. didn't know anybody. I still had one eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) We all had one eyebrow. It's cool again. (laughs) Um, But I remember because when things were so hard at home and I didn't 
think I could survive. The only time things were okay was when we were watching TV. Mm. That's when everybody connected. Mm. We connected watching the WWF with my dad, action movies. We connected watching Dynasty with my mom. Nobody was arguing. Mm. Nobody was talking about politics. There weren't fights. We weren't disappointing them. Everybody was just happy. The TV gave them joy. It gave us peace. It gave our family something to come around. And I knew that that was the seed of what I wanted to recreate to give to others Mm. because it was my survival mechanism. And so the seed to me has always been, how do I repay into the consciousness what was gifted to me? Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. and so there are so many layers to what I think my dharma is. And I hope that it's both. I hope that I can continue to rise as an actress and a woman from Afghanistan that is uh, not afraid to, doesn't have shame about where she's from, isn't, you know, doesn't have shame to stand up for um, a culture that has some dark sides, a religion that has faced a lot of dark sides. Uh, I'm not afraid to stand up for that. And I hope that that ends up being a dual dharma for me and that Mm. I get to stand and rise in that and that people accept that. And with that acceptance that, you know, it helps heal pieces of the consciousness that I am not even aware of. Love it. That's beautiful. Um, okay. Can we, let's talk, let's go back to neuroplasticity. (laughs) Yeah. So you're sitting next to this brain dude, (laughs) professor. So I, professor, he's the Dean of medicine. Okay. So no big deal. You're sitting next (laughs) to the Dean of medicine at Harvard. And, He was like, Asita, are you even 30? And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, Dr. Nadler. Um, And we actually talked about longevity and youthfulness and something that I've always been super into. And I think I get this from my dad. My dad was a biohacker. This Afghan man loved holistic medicine practices I mean he was like cracking eggs and eat drinking protein shakes and like I was like he was like something I remember I had this like epic boy my college sweetheart I mean we fought we loved and we fought and my dad was like Bachim I was like yeah dad he's like you are a bitch take this kava kava <laughs> Oh my god. He was like, I was like, what? He's like, you're too emotional. You're a bitch with Pete. Take this, take this kava kava. It calms you down. And he just would know about vitamins and supplements and all these things. Yeah. And so for whatever reason I got into biohacking. If my dad was a rich white man, he would have been uh, the guy from Bulletproof, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he isn't. He's like just watching YouTube and making things in his kitchen. That's funny. Um if he'd had another life, that probably would have been it. But um So I got really into, I wasn't allowed to exercise. Oh. It was culturally forbidden. Whoa. We weren't allowed to sweat. They were scared of that. We weren't allowed to be around boys. Um, Although I was allowed to be a cheerleader because my dad wanted to go to the football games. And so it was a reason. So I could be, you know, and it was also away from the boys. I was on the thing, Mm -hmm. you know, in the, on the track. Mm -hmm. Um, But once I began to um, exercise, my life changed. Hmm. Whatever the brain fog or anxiety, all the stuff that I'd had, um, it disappeared. 
and I, be, I became a runner. Yeah, and so you're still a runner. Like I'm a mega still a runner. runner. Like five, you, six miles a day, right? Not anymore. I have a hip tear. So now I've changed the running, but I still run about, I ran two and a half miles before I came here in the morning just to run. Uh-huh. And so as I kind of got into, you know, what that was, that feeling, that freedom that I felt um, through running, also through silence, through yoga, through sweat, the, the ability to finally sweat was this like sense of, pure bliss for me Mm. and um come to find out i realized through trying to understand what that feeling was what that euphoria was was that when your brain is under um high pressure under like impact like running or high intensity interval training or meditation Mm. right you are creating new stem cells Mm. in your brain seems like meditation is different from high interval intensity and running so the meditation is uh, a new neural pathway Hmm. so when you have when you're breathing in the space and thoughts come up and you're allowed to uh, let the thoughts move what you're doing is you're allowing the brain to light up in different arenas Mm -hmm. right arenas that it doesn't normally go to Mm -hmm. and the more that you do that kind of a practice the more Mm -hmm. you do that practice through breath Mm -hmm. of facing a challenge and not you know on the mat on the yoga mat when you're when you're sweating and you want to get out of it of not and facing that challenge, you're lighting up a new pathway. Mm-hmm. And so the more the repetitive uh, pathway gets lit up, the more you're opening new avenues in your brain. Mm-hmm. The running and the high intensity interval training has the ability to create new stem cells mm-hmm. in your brain. And so I was I was talking to the, the dean of medicine at Harvard and I, I said, you know, I've been a runner and I have thought, and you can correct me because I'm just reading these in science magazines and I don't, and he was like, how do you know these things? <laughs> And I was like, I'm fascinated with the brain. He goes, you're 100% right. He's like, high impact exercise running is the brain is one of the only organs that can regenerate. Hmm. And the difference between my patients who I've had for 30 years, who are now in their 70s and 80s, the difference between the two groups is those who have exercised and those who have not. And I thought that that was really valuable. And I don't think that exercise gets enough credit mm-hmm. in our quest of consciousness is that your ma- main consciousness practice would you say yes and journaling journaling i started journaling at 12 okay so tell me about tell me about your like day or morning get up journal run get up meditate journal run run journal meditate so today i got up and i watched this video from this vienna this seven day relationship reset and today was on conflict so try to do something that lives in the consciousness for those like first 20 minutes and so you found a video today i'm on this like web seven day program okay got it and with a marriage family therapist vienna we'll link to it What's it called? Um, it's so her name is Vienna Ferrone and she's the mindful MFT. Okay. And so she's doing this seven day relationship reset with her husband now, um, who has this thing called man talks and they go as a couple and they talk about elevating the consciousness and dealing with relationship conflict. And she's somebody that is, is focused on pivoting towards changing behavior as opposed to pivoting away. Okay. Right. Like not running away, knowing that these feelings come up for us and, and not, you know, getting angry and locking down or more about like calling in who you are in those moments. Who's your, where's your shadow? Uh-huh. Are you being the point prover? Are you shutting down? Like which, wh- who are you? Can you call to it and say, you know what? I'm being a point prover right now. Uh-huh. I need to step away from this. I need space. I need a minute and kind of calling in my sacred version of myself, which is like, I'm going to 
love you more. I'm going to be more tender. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more listening. So I did that for about 20 minutes today. And then I asked myself some questions about um, how conflict shows up for me in relationship and how I manage it. Um, So I did that. And then um, I took a shot of apple cider vinegar with oregano oil. Is this from your dad? Well, you know, probably, yeah. So oregano, so apple cider vinegar, what, it alkalinizes your blood. It alkalinizes it's your good body. for digestion. And the, yes, and oregano oil is an herbal. Good for antibiotic. Man, yeah, antibiotic. Yeah, so immune. Yes, and so I did that, and then I went for a two-and-a-half-mile run because I had the handyman coming, and I needed to be right. done. I would have run a little bit longer. Um, so I try to make sure that I exercise in the morning, mm-hmm. and if I don't get that, then then that's hard for me. And mm-hmm. then it's usually, if it's not an audition or working on a script, it's it's a morning of advocacy. Mm-hmm. And so that once I exercise, it's like, and, and I tend to work, I'm, I like to work in high efficiency mode for a few hours and then I have to take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and I let my brain come down and that's usually with a walk. Mm. Um, so I try to make sure that I'm active and in nature as often as possible. Mm-hmm. When I'm upset or unsettled or scared, I have to be close to water or trees. So what will you do when you get I'll, upset? Or you I'll go... put in earbuds and I'll start walking. Great. And I'll take that walk. It's hard for me to run when I'm really upset yeah. because my heart feels like it's going to stop. Yeah, I know that feeling. So I will walk. Although and... sometimes I find that like if I'm upset and I go for a run, which by the way, I haven't run in a, a while and I'm dying to, but I now I live in this place with like hills. It's all hills where I live. It's just, I it's mean. It's just <laughs> all hills. It's one big fucking hill. There's yeah. no flat. And so now I'm like, oh God, I don't want to. I don't want to run up hills. <laughs> no. So anyway, I haven't run since I lived in the flats. Um, and, but I remember the feeling of like it bringing stuff up for me. Like I would run and suddenly become breathless with tears, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and I would just like sob on the street, (laughs) like, because it really, because what, whatever the, my heart rate like matched the pitch of whatever feeling I was Mm -hmm. feeling, you know, like it it enabled me to feel the feeling that I, it, in fact, it, it stopped precluding me from feeling the feeling that I needed to feel. You know, I mean, I love that. And I, I think that it's such, and people ask me all the time, you know, how do you run? And I say, don't, don't start with two minutes, right? Just start with two minutes and then walk and then do another two minutes and then walk. Never put the pressure on yourself to go out there and run for, no, just give yourself 15 minutes in the morning and do what you can. But So wait, but tell me about, so you were saying, so do you have exercises with this neuroplasticity? Because I think I've worked with this a little bit. Like you were saying before just about like affirmation. Do you have affirmations? Like when you replace a thought that is, you know, like my thought was I'm going to be destitute. And so you talked about replacing that thought with, you know, I am safe or whatever. I think it's really important to grab those thoughts when they come up. And I think that we have so many of those thoughts that are a driving force for us that Mm -hmm. are really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And then that voice and that story becomes our reality. And those are not our reality. Our reality is like consciousness and light and like love and joy and all these things. So how do we do it? How do you grab a thought? Well, you have to become aware when thoughts come up. Uh And so it's really about signaling how, so for me, and I know this is, you know, I don't know if this is possible for everybody, but it's, it's like, what do you put into your body? You know, like, 
are you clean enough? Are you light enough? Like if I'm really heavy with like a heavy meal, I want to chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't want to do any like good thinking. I want to just relax. Mm-hmm. Like, so there are those moments too where I just want, I'm going to have some pizza and some wine. My right. brain doesn't want to think about anything. Right. She's overthinking. She's uh-huh. going to chill now. Yeah. But so like in the space of when I'm light and when I'm free, things, especially as I, I'll, I'll, what is what are the triggers? You know, do triggers come up in my relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, what just happened and what do I need from him? What's this bringing up for me? And hey, you know, when you needed space, I felt like it was, I'm all of a sudden telling myself it's the story of my dad mm-hmm. who before we divorced would just go and shut himself in the room and mm-hmm. wouldn't talk to anybody for mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. And so I'm feeling there's this a lot of fear in mm-hmm. coming up to me and I, I, I know that's not what you're doing. Can you reassure me? That we're I need safe. reassurance. I need reassurance. Yeah. And it, you know, that's a demand. Up, your partner's got to be <laughs> ready to give well, you that reassurance. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But in expressing that need, right. you're instead of saying, don't fucking leave the room. Right. Instead of saying, like, how dare you leave the room? Or, uh, yes. You're, you're causing a fight. Right. You're, or, right you are being vulnerable yes like the the tendency the the want for most of us is to be like fuck you for doing that right like i'm gonna judge you yes i'm gonna judge you for that bit of behavior because i that made me feel shitty yeah i'm i'm not i'm so that's the one that i have a gift and it's non-judgment well it's so powerful to say like i'm gonna i'm gonna bypass this judgment and just go you know what when this literal thing happened when you left the room I think that's what you said right yeah like when you when you pulled away when you pulled away in that moment I I felt discovered that this fear fear, it I I, and and also what I've realized because I'm getting in so in tune with my feeling is that my I can't focus on anything but the health of our relationship so you are disrupting the rest of my life the health of my relationship, my is the anxiety of like needing to fix this is like going so into right. overdrive that until I get like I'm not gonna function well in this kind of a situation or scenario. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten clear enough to know that my advocacy takes a hit, my acting takes a mm-hmm. hit, my friendships take mm-hmm. a hit because I'm an overwhelm. My mm-hmm. body is activated mm-hmm. and I need your help. Mm-hmm. I need your help. I don't wanna be this way. Well, but also in expressing your need sometimes like that's enough like your need can just be there you know reassurance is a fundamental human need we all at some point need reassurance right whether or not he responds to that need ultimately is kind of up to him and it's who he's it's who he's going to be and then it's ultimately up to me if i decide if i can live within the parameters of that right if there's a compromise or a new collaboration that we can work on in some way and that's all part of i think being a work in progress in a relationship and and also sorry i don't mean to interrupt you but like this trick you know you know how you described your childhood and your parents and like it must be so triggering for you when there's discord in your relationship well that you know it's it's interesting i'm really okay with conflict right but i'm not okay with being i've realized that when someone is going to pass a judgment Mm -hmm. or criticism on me Mm -hmm. i need it to be done with affection I need you to like be in so love and so tender, like, sweetie, like I love you so much, but this thing keeps on coming up for me mm-hmm. where you do this and I think it's a wall mm-hmm. and can we look at it? 
because if it's like a, you just avoided that and I don't, you know, if it comes at me with heat, mm-hmm. I'm out. Are I disconnect good, how, right away. How good at you are you at, or when was the last time, or you can answer this however, but I'm curious, like, do you remember a time recently where you were like, you know what? I was wrong. Yes. It happened the other day. Oh, good. It happened three days ago. Uh-huh. Um, I picked a fight with my boyfriend. Uh, he, I had been ch- chased by a, a transient, a homeless guy or somebody on the street wow. while I was running at the park, um, started to run with me and I stopped and I was like, please, I don't have time for this today. And then he turned around and was like, hut, 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 hut. And I just started to run again and he started running with me again and I stopped and then I went to the groundskeeper at the park and I said, this guy smells like alcohol, like whatever, whatever. I was scared. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like when I took that to my partner, he was like very concerned. And he was like, but you're okay now, right? All right, cool. Yeah. And I felt really abandoned. Yeah. I didn't feel like the full expression of my feelings was received and that I wanted my man to f- make me feel, are you safe? Should I come over? Right. <laughs> what do you need? Right. Do you need a bodyguard? You How much can I protect him. you? Yeah. Because I need that. I have been in very vulnerable situations. And when I feel like I've been threatened, and it's not always, but when I feel like I've, a boundary has been violated for me, I get shaken up. And because he doesn't have that same thing, he's not scared like that. He doesn't always seem to grasp it. And so it was fine. It passed. I didn't think anything. But then the next day I was like, mm-hmm. I was mad about the thing Uh from yesterday. And he's like, what's going on? And I was like, you know, I just don't think that. And I I don't know. I mean, you shouldn't have you shouldn't have done it. I just feel like you didn't listen to me and you didn't validate my feelings. And like Mm. you're not being present. And, you know, it's hard because I I do have so much consciousness that it's hard to also sometimes argue with me Mm -hmm. because I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, then when you did this thing, you were going to that thing. And I went to that. Mm -hmm. And it's just not fun. You Mm -hmm. know, like, and God bless him. He Mm -hmm. is so amazing. Mm -hmm. Um. And he just like, you could see him getting upset and he got angry mm. because he un- well, unfairly defensive. Yeah. He was, he's like, I thought I was there. I don't and like, and you know, and I was like, well, I didn't think you were there, you know? And yeah. he got really upset mm. and I was like, I'm going out tonight. It's my friend's birthday and I just, I'm going to go and I, I, I'm going to go be Azita and like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like oh, got my earrings in yeah. like, you know, just like dick, like, you know, puffing up my chest a yeah. bit. I'm not immune to that. Like, yeah. I'm not. And I got off the phone with him, and I sat there for a minute, and I go, what was the truth? What was the truth? What was the truth? You felt really anxious yesterday because he didn't call you back after he kind of got off the phone with that and check on you again. And because you got anxious, you needed an emotional reaction from him to feel seen. Mm. So you just picked a fight with him to get that emotional reaction so that you could feel seen and you could feel loved. And he FaceTimed me like 10 minutes later from the car and he was like, hi. And I was like, Hey, I'm really sorry. I just picked a fight with you. And he was like, what? I was like, I just picked a fight with you and you didn't deserve it. And I just, I was activated. I was, I had a lot of anxiety yesterday that stemmed from being, harassed by a transient on the street 
and I didn't think I got what I needed and I took it out on you and I'm I'm sorry you didn't deserve that and I mean I, he probably had an orgasm <laughs> yeah yeah well it's an it's amazing when we're when somebody sort of hum, humbles themselves in that way when I mean that's such an open vulnerable thing to do it really is, you know, and then and all of a sudden you're reconnected, you know. He was still mad. I mean, he, oh, he, he, was. He, he was still mad. He needed to carry it for a little while and then. But you let him, right? I let him carry it for a little while. And then I was like, I, I need I need there to be radical love right now. Mm. Like, I need you to find a space where there's even when you're angry, you're still in radical love. And is that shorthand <laughs> for like a way that you guys are together or like what is when you've it's said a way that, that I'd like before. to be. It's it's the which it's, is just like even if you're pissed at me, I need you to be turned facing forward and make sure that I love you and I'm angry, but mm-hmm. I love you. But that did piss me off, sweetheart. And I don't like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I need you to stay always in love and not in fear and not in ego and not in narcissism, narcissism to be like, well, you pissed me off, so I'm going to hurt you back. Mm-hmm. And that does not work for me. I had a parent with narcissistic personality disorder everything was about them I cannot function in that kind of a scenario I will humble myself as much as I can but I will not be a doormat Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh man we could do so many episodes on just narcissism all right did we finish about neuroplasticity do we talk about I I just want to see like is there is there so you catch a thought you catch a thought and then and then you you find a do you have a process I guess is what I'm saying so for me it's always and, and you have to be able to get clear of what you're what are you afraid of like people are like I'm afraid and they put it on someone else right but like there's something going on in you right what is that like can you name that fear right and can you actually then map that fear to some where did that fear come from and then after you do that you give yourself like an oppositional thought yeah like what's the reality of like okay I'm you know I'm never gonna work again you know, right. like, no, the truth is, is that you've always landed on your feet. Right. You always get a job. You're so loved and, ex, ex, you know, um, respected by your community. And if this door closes, another door opens. Mm-hmm. The universe has got me. It always has had me. Since I arrived here, you know, with the asylum, you know what I mean? The universe had me. So, so you might start thinking like, I'm never going to work again. And then you might work yourself around to instead saying the universe has me. The universe has and me. And then you might repeat that to yourself daily. You might write it down somewhere. You might, I, mean, I, I have to, so when I'm, so there have been moments where I have done an hour of affirmations a day and Mm -hmm. that's really to when I did a lot of Louise Hay Mm -hmm. you know that kind of like and I some of her stuff is so funny and Mm -hmm. she's like you're beautiful I'm beautiful Uh I'm beautiful you're beautiful Uh (laughs) it's like ridiculous Uh and that stuff is not great but uh, (laughs) Uh but she has this um uh you can do it Mm. affirmation that I listen to a lot do you remember it um the thoughts you have aren't your thoughts. They're thoughts of a previous story. And the thoughts, so what comes up for you around money? Did you have a parent that always talked about how they didn't have money? Is mm-hmm. that your story? No, that's their story. You are not your parents' story. I am not my parents' story. Mm-hmm. I am my story. Mm-hmm. I have money. 
you know, and so in that space of like actually really calling those, those things in like, what is it for you around food? What is it for you around health? What is that, you know, in that space, she really kind of did this in this is such an old thing. I mean, mm-hmm. this lady's, but she yeah. was like the OG. Yeah. That and um, Psycho-Cybernetics Whoa, by great. Maxwell Maltz. Okay. And Maxwell Maltz was this PhD doctor. I think actually he was a plastic surgeon. Hmm. And this book is from, I, I think it's the 50s. Okay, we'll look it up. And it was, it's what Tony Robbins, it's what every single self-help person has mm. based their work on okay. is the psychocybernetics. Okay. And Maxwell, that book was the first book that took me outside of like what an affirmation is to actual ap- applicable um, tools mm. and using them. He would correct people's, like he people would come in and want surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm ugly, I'm, I'm scarred, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, this thing happened. And he would give them their new face and then they still had the same right. deformities right. inside. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. And he realized that so much of that was um, the, this, this repetitive story of the, who they were before their surgeries. Right. And they couldn't tell themselves a new story. Mm-hmm. And so he did this thing that I really love, which was living in your winning moments. Mm. Because the body can't tell when something's real or something's yeah. visualized, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with, um, uh, oh my, uh, undefeated. Oh my gosh, oh the book Jonathan Tucker, who you oh, know yeah. Tuck Tuck. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Tucker was not the person that told me to read this book. My friend, trainer, um, Nike Run um, expert mm-hmm. Joe Holder mm-hmm. was reading this book by um, uh, this trainer he's michael jordan's trainer and lebron james trainer same kind of principles in that space um like the game of tennis Uh like same kind of thing Mm -hmm. but so the maxwell maltz thing i think is the og and it's about having winning moments Mm -hmm. like the winning moments movie in your head Mm -hmm. and people can do that through creating a video uh, you know on their computer that they play which is like moments of them winning and there's also this big fear of feeling like they, you know, I know that in my relationship sometimes, you know, he wouldn't like it when I would have to focus on like, okay, I can do this. I can achieve this. I'm good. I'm like when I'd have to like get myself up there, uh-huh. but there is, I think the world is constructed to bring us down. Mm. Our thoughts are constructed to pull us down. Media images of women are it's all kind of to keep us at a lower level so that we buy more. So that we need more, so that we need their drugs. Mm-hmm. We need to buy this product to be beautiful. We, you know, mm-hmm. and when we actually can start to get ourselves in the place where we're okay, mm-hmm. I think it does take a tremendous amount of radical love towards yourself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can, at times, become a little imbalanced. But I do think you need that kind of radical love towards yourself so that it can then settle. Sure. But the Winning Moments movie is like remembering the feeling of. What was your proudest moment? Mm-hmm. Like when you knew you achieved the thing mm-hmm. that you had been working so hard on right. achieving. Mm-hmm. What was that feeling inside of you? Can and, you relive that? Yeah. And starting your day and that moment of like living in that like, oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that tricking your brain mm-hmm. into knowing that it's winning. And like, by the way, like I'm a mom now and like I wake up my, my morning start with my daughter, like being like, excuse me, come get me. Yeah. Excuse me. I never, I never, I never sleep as much as I need to anymore. 
Can you imagine? I know. No. Your eyes just widen. But that's how it goes. Sleep. <laughs> now, like, maybe I could start, if I were good, I mean, like, look, I'm working on it, but if I were great, I would probably just go to bed at 8 every night, and then, like, I would get enough sleep, because even if she woke up at 5.30, which luckily isn't happening as much anymore, but, like, whatever. The point is, is that, you know, it, for me, waking up is not, like, I don't have, I used to, every morning, I woke up, I did my mantras, I sat and I meditated, <laughs> then I journaled. This is before I, like, even fucking got out of bed, you know what I mean? And it's just a totally different thing. Yeah. But I, and I'm telling you this because, like, I, I am not even excusing myself here. Like, it is always possible. It, it write a note next to your bed. Just write. Remind yourself in those waking moments to do something active toward this end, toward making yourself feel good, and you will. Gosh, if you just put a post-it just note next to your second. bed that said "I love you," oh my god, and you just looked at that right? in the morning, and you go, "Oh, I love you." Yeah. And you know, like even if it's just, and that might sound so new agey and silly, but like. At my friend it is new agey but that doesn't make it silly and you know what it also like like some new agey shit's bullshit some new agey shit's great some really tried and true spiritual uh uh wisdom is kind of bullshitty some is great you know what i mean like it's like it, and, and by the way it's all up to our interpretation of what we take from it whenever it is mm-hmm. you know but so there is i think a way with the the babies I, and i just my friend Catherine mccord who has the weelicious i don't mm-hmm. know if you follow her instagram she's this amazing mom of three and Catherine posted this story last night with her youngest every night when she puts her to bed she says I love you and daddy loves you and grandma loves you Mm -hmm. and -and so-and-so loves you and this person loves you and this person at the park Mm -hmm. loved you today and Mm -hmm. like just like fills her with all the people that loved her today that's beautiful and she said last night was the first night that Gemma said it back to her oh oh my god mama loves you I love you daddy loves and so to think actually yes you can yes you can continue because your children are a reflection Mm -hmm. of that that sacredness Mm -hmm. and that filling the cup with love right Mm -hmm. so even if you don't think it's present right now Mm -hmm. what you're communicating to them in the space of like you know what we're gonna you and i and they need this and they need that can we spend two minutes together Mm -hmm. today breathing yeah me and you let's breathe Mm -hmm. what is that going to be like you know and in the space of watch in three years she's going to come to you and say you know what mommy i think we need to breathe today and so the is a way to just mm-hmm. just layer those tiny bits of consciousness totally. into this new space of yeah. motherhood for you. Yeah. It's not going to be the same. Like I'm, I don't have a baby yet. Mm-hmm. I hope to be in that position next year. Mm-hmm. But it's like I hope that I can then take. It's going to be a whole new world. But I will take. Luckily, I've had the time in my adult life to heal Mm -hmm. all my trauma, not all of them, but Mm -hmm. as much Mm -hmm. as I could, Mm -hmm. that I can then live in a space of like healing with my child and healing with the baby so that the baby then is a, as a parrot, a repair key and a reflection and a mirror back to me of that stuff. Once they get old enough, we do every night before she goes to sleep, we talk about her day, but just the facts, no judgment. You did this today. We woke up. This is what you had for breakfast. Yeah. We walked in and we do the whole day yeah. while she's nursing. I mean, I'm going to implement that. I think everyone, what, what Catherine did. I think the love you think is beautiful. I, maybe, we'll loved, add, maybe we'll add that into our Who routine. loved you. Oh, my God. And the nanny loved you. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. like, and remember that per- they loved you. And, yeah. you know, just think about all that love that yeah. fills them. And I know that that love will come back to you. That's beautiful. 
Oh my God, Azita, thank you. That was so beautiful. <laughs> thank you for having oh me. Oh my God. For talking in this way. Thanks for being here. <laughs> that was amazing. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at I am Kat Foster and reach out to us using the hashtag ActingRealPod. For links and recommendations from this week's episode, visit ActingRealPodcast.com. Episodes go up on Mondays. Subscribe to the show and rate and review us. It would mean so, so much to us if you did. This podcast is produced by Hanami Sutton and Chris Mako with technical assistance by David O'Hara and music by Sean Hokinson. We love you guys. We really, really do. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.